Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, race, media, culture, and politics, right? All those four things. Hi. Wait, what? (laughs) I'm sorry. I was answering your question. (laughs) (laughs) It's race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. There you go. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna have to write this down. It's only been three years, Chris. <laughs> three years. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna you still haven't written it down. This is the one. I'm gonna nail it this time. Ready? Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris, I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. I'm back, baby. Yes, he's back, everybody. (laughs) Jason took a season off because he had other responsibilities, but now he's back, and he's going to talk about stuff. Jason, you missed an entire season. So much happened. Trisha, Trisha went in for plastic surgery. It didn't go well. Um, she was in a car accident. So much happened. You, you've got to catch up. Did you listen to the podcast? Be honest. I, halfway through the first episode without me, I had to stop because it was so sad to me that I wasn't a part of it. Oh, what a nice way of saying you just gave up once you didn't hear your own voice. <laughs> <laughs> Am I reading that right, Trisha? Is that what you just said? <laughs> I know. I thought it was very gentle. Um, <laughs> a little bit of but it's Can okay. it be both sadness <laughs> and vanity? Can it be both? <laughs> yes, I like both. I think so, both works. <laughs> you have like a whole season to catch up. We're different people now, Jason. We've moved on. Our, our viewpoints are different. Radically different. Radically. I mean, well, I've no radical. Radicalized. I've been radicalized. <laughs> you've, you've been radicalized. <laughs> Well, I just spent, you know, a year and three quarters in the Trump administration. So I would like to say that I think I I will be interestingly different, too. Oh, great. This is going to be fun for exactly no one. Uh, (laughs) We we look forward to finding out all those nuances, all those changes, all those little quirks that you've you've picked up. Oh, boy. Oh, everyone. What's the most exciting thing you've done this summer then, Jason? The most exciting thing I did this summer. Yeah, I was not ready for that question. Trisha, what's the most exciting thing (laughs) you did this summer? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know what? Actually not exciting, but a continued tradition, which is every year I go to New York and Labor Day weekend with my wonderful friend, Jem. I mean, I really look forward to that week, you know? It's like our time away from our lives and we basically eat too much, sleep late, wander the streets of New York, see plays, and just talk for hours. It's really great. I love and, it. And you see me. Oh, yeah, that too. Wow. <laughs> but this wow. year was great. And I have to say, we've been experiencing, like, climate change progressively through the years and I, I you remember last year we had the same problem of one day where we just could not tolerate the heat so we ended up going into the met just to, yes. just to cool off. just to cool off and this year the same thing happened Two Trisha years. texted me right before she came here and she's like oh what's the temperature like I said honey yesterday it was 94 today it's 69 I don't know do what you want to do it doesn't matter it's all <laughs> no one can call it 
It was so unpleasant, but it was good. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When 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 the climate is going to be like this, I don't know how we're going to keep ourselves entertained. We're never going to leave the house. I really- we're going to move to Canada finally. Uh, it will finally make sense. Yeah. <laughs> the weather will finally make sense. Jason, you've had plenty of time to think. What's the most exciting thing you did this summer? Well, so what I'll say is that I I went to Alaska for the second time. I'm not sure I would just wait. As exciting. When did you go to Alaska? That's great. You didn't tell it? me that. Well, you know, my sister and her husband and my niece moved to Alaska um, a couple years ago. So um, I just went for the second time to visit them. Alaska is not really my favorite place, but it is beautiful and it is interesting. I also recently went to San Francisco and I was so, this isn't exciting, but I was so unfortunately reminded of how you two describe San Francisco <laughs> on this podcast after you two went. And it <laughs> I didn't, you know, I, I listened were we to right I or, heard, or were we wrong? You, oh, you were so right. What I wasn't ready for is like what it would feel like yeah. for that much poverty to be in this. And I, I don't know what to make of it. Like, like I, okay. that was my first time in San Francisco in a long time. I remember San Francisco being, as I used to think of it, uh, left wing vegetarian heaven. And there's still <laughs> lots of perfect for you, you. Know, left wing. Exactly. And vegetarianism. But you walk through a lot of poverty and homelessness. I was also struck by, you know, it wasn't just homelessness. It was people doing, selling, and buying drugs all over the place. And oh, right in front of your face. Right in front of your face. Broad daylight. And um, in the middle of the sidewalk. I, I yes, saw that. Not yeah. even like in an alcove. Like Not, no effort to hide. At the corner. It was unbelievable. And the other thing that was interesting is the diversity of homeless people, mm-hmm. age, race, ethnicity. And it was, I had never seen anything like it. It was really disturbing. Yeah, so I used to describe San Francisco to people who um, like, oh, what's, um, what's San Francisco like? I'm like, oh, it's kind of like a European city, you know? And then Europeans would come and I would talk to them about what's their favorite city in New York, in, um, in America. And they'd say, oh, San Francisco. And now I'm like, chirp. Well, I used to tell people, I tell people San Francisco is the prettiest city in America. Yep. That's what I used to tell people, but um, please, I've got to do a lot of backtracking because people are like, your judgment is off. (laughs) I mean, I'm surprised, like I have not seen, maybe there are books out there, but the decline of that city, and I mean a rapid decline, I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I think it's sad just because it used to be it gorgeous. It used to be yeah. gorgeous, but now it, it's just, it's, it's like, it's like well. walking dead. Yes, it is. It's like walking dead. Uh, San Francisco, RIP. No, but last thing before we jump into topics, I want to say there's something about Alaska right now. You are straight up the fourth person this summer who's told me they'd been to Alaska within the last couple of months. Something was, about Alaska right was, now. What is it? I was contemplating it. I was no, like, you weren't. I was actually because I was like, you know, have some time. And I was like, should I go to Alaska? No. And then I thought to myself, no. <laughs> Thrilling. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for that story. Um, to recap, wait, don't bother to rewind anyone. Let me recap that. Trisha was sitting around. She kind of looked up towards the sky and said, should I go to Alaska? Then she said, nah. And end scene. I thought I was going to, um, I thought the coolest way to do Alaska might be like a cruise. But I just, I'm not really a cruising type of person. So that's where I paused. Okay, wait. 
45 more seconds of, of chat. Mm-hmm. Have, have either of you been on a, on a cruise? No. Yes. You have. Would yes. I like it? No. I wouldn't. See, that's what I thought. Why wouldn't I like it? Toxic You know, it's – I like going on cruises with kids because it's so contained. Mm-hmm. But that very containment – I mean, it's – I don't think – you know, it's funny though. I, I've gone to Alaska twice. I have not done a cruise to Alaska. I've done cruises like in the Caribbean. I actually would like to do exactly the opposite. Alaska is a place that I actually think I'd probably like better if I was seeing it on a cruise. I'd much rather, you know – go to islands and really get into the culture and meet people and stuff, then stop there for four hours and spend a lot of money. And <laughs> yeah, I, you know, cruise is just like, it's all this food. Every, like the food is like 75% of it and everything is expensive. And I don't know. See, okay. I don't think you'd like it. Okay, that's fine. It's, you know why? Did you like Vegas? Did I like Vegas? Yeah. No. So there you go. I assume cruises are like one big Vegas trip. Okay, that's I've been I've been toying with this idea for months, like going on a year. I'm like, should I just go on a cruise? Should I just go on a cruise? Let me just go on a cruise. But, that's you know, a good description, Trisha. I would say it's like Vegas, but the shows aren't quite as good. <laughs> oh damn! <laughs> oh damn! <laughs> I mean, look, Cirque du Soleil is not on the cruise. Penn and Teller are not on the cruise. There are other people who do somewhat similar things, but it's not them. <laughs> Oh, mercy. Well, there it has it. That's Jason's review of Cute Cruff Cruises. Too contained. We just lost a sponsor. We just just lost prospective sponsors. Norwegian, come back, please. (laughs) Use offer code outrageous. No, there's no such thing. Don't do that. Uh, (laughs) Okay. 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 Let's talk about stuff, huh? Let's talk about topics. I'm going to introduce this topic. It's very broad, but um, what I wanted to talk about tonight was, is it time's up for me too? (sighs) So as the Kavanaugh hearing drags on, and by the time this airs, it will be over. Uh, it had uh, better. Be it, so it had sure better be. That. Actually, it had better be. I'm so sure about it's already gone on too we'll, long. We'll be on accuser twelve. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but what the Kavanaugh hearing really puts into high relief is just how abominable men in power's behavior has been and and how abominable we are for continuing to tolerate and make excuses for it. Um, the Me Too movement that swept the world, um, our part of it anyway, last year, um, it, it sacrificed a lot of people. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, uh, Louis C.K., literally hundreds of others. Uh, any Anybody in Hollywood over the age of 50 was <laughs> indicted in the court of public opinion. Uh, but what we've seen over the past couple of weeks and months is uh, people are slowly crawling back into their jobs and crawling back into their positions while we just sort of shrug and ask ourselves, well, what are we supposed to do? And that includes like Matt Lauer. That includes uh, Louis C.K., like I mentioned. Um, Harvey Weinstein looks like he's going to jail. But I guess my question for you, Trisha, uh, let's start here. My question is. That's so sexist, by the way. I just object to that. Okay, well, first of all, join a men's rights rights group. Hard out here for a man. (laughs) I'm sure. Meeting in your local alley behind some (laughs) bar. Um, (laughs) Have fun. Uh, Patricia, how do we let these men come back? Do we let them come back? What penance do they have to pay? Well, you know what? I was in preparation for this conversation. I decided to do a little bit of background reading on Time's Up versus Me Too. And I think that's really important. I think it's a really important distinction. Well, make it for us. 
because I think Kavanaugh makes that distinction for us. So Me Too is really about the conversation, right? It's about leading from a place of empathy. empathy. So you share your story. You share your story so that you find out that you are not alone. So that you understand that this is um, a systemic issue. You're not the only victim. The structure of society sets it up in such a way that you are most likely going to be victimized if you are a woman, particularly if you're a woman of color, if you are, um, because of sort of the nature of the power dynamics in our society, vulnerable people are going to be exploited. And Me Too is specifically about sexual violence, right? It could happen for any other groups of people. And so I think that distinction is really important around Me Too because Me Too is really about a conversation starter, right? It's about, let me tell you what happened to me. Me too. This happened to me. And let me explain what happened. And then it, it and then time's up is really specific, which I think is I, I hadn't really kind of understood that clearly, but time's up is specifically about how women and vulnerable communities or vulnerable people are victimized within the workplace. And specifically around sexual harassment and sexual violence within the workplace. So how do we change the working environment for women so that they are not susceptible to being victimized by more powerful forces at their work. And I think that's, that distinction is really important because I think when we talk about folks like Louis C.K. and other men, part of the challenge is that we don't have sort of laws to deal with the way that they have victimized women in workspaces, right? Like, with, like you said, Harvey Weinstein is going to go to jail. Because there, there actually some legal precedent. There's actually, you know, the time's not the time hasn't run out in some of his crimes. But I think with some of the other women, it's 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 less clear how you can actually argue this within a court of law, right? And so then the larger question becomes, well, what's our punishment for these men then? Which I think is really important because I think that if we understand that there are two separate movements. And the burden of proof in Time's Up is really about our existing laws and whether we can change that. Then I think the question of can you come back then um, rests in the fact that, okay, is the statute of limitation over on the crime that you've committed as a man, blah, 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 blah. I think those kinds of things can come out in, in that conversation. But if in the conversation and dialogue around Me Too now, we have to begin to sort of shift our attention and recognize that it's beyond just one individual guy. It's about how do we change the conversation about what our expectations are supposed to be for men. And so I'm not so much interested in whether these guys find a space to come back. I'm trying to figure out how do we actually maybe change laws or change policy so that we make sure that when they do create like a hostile environment within certain spaces that they, we don't have to have this conversation about can you creep and crawl back in? Mm -hmm. I think that's really, the, that's really a big issue. Well, like we laws in the books for this. It was really helpful to me to mm -hmm. separate times up. Like the times up is not really a movement, but the idea of times up versus hashtag me too, that was really helpful. And, and you brought up the idea of like crimes, mm -hmm. right? But sometimes it's not a crime that's being committed. It's just like a general grossness, like around some of these men, like Louis C.K., who exposed himself to women and then attempted to limit their career opportunities in ways that are not necessarily illegal. Uh, it's just really kind of gross. So Jason, like, I'm going to throw this to you. Like, what do you do? What, what, how, 
how do we approach thinking about this? And how did we get here? One thing I want to say, which this is a topic for another day, but I really am more and more wrestling with the question of, do we as a society have shared values? Because I'm not sure that we do. Obviously, there are communities within our society that have shared values within them, and some communities have shared values with each other. But what I'm struck by, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you said, Tricia, but I think, Chris, you make a good point. And the thing is, there's, a, there's certainly a lot more we could do in terms of law. There's certainly a, mo- a lot more we could do in terms of punishment, you know, crime, sentences, etc. But what I'm most disturbed by is the lack of appetite among many to respond in any way or in any way that's effective. So I think about the people we're talking about. So, you know, Louis C.K. got on stage at a club, did a set, and people stood up and applauded. And clearly, at least the people in that room who got up and applauded, and apparently there was a standing ovation is what I read, clearly they are fine with him getting on stage. So what I'm troubled by is that three of us could sit here and decide that, you know, he shouldn't be allowed or people shouldn't spend their money. But a lot of people clearly are willing to. Now, that was spontaneous. I recently heard that, like, Garrison Keillor just has announced he's doing two shows in Minnesota. They both sold out right away. Because I would say, I mean, one of the most powerful things we can do in some of these cases is, use, you know, use our money, boycott. We're not going to invest in people that have, you know, done certain things, whether it was criminal or not. If, we, if it doesn't align with our values and we think it was harmful to vulnerable people, we're not going to financially support them. But a lot of people are still willing to do that. I, I don't know what to do with that. Well, the question is, I like your, um, I like you asking about what are our values, right? Because I think that's really what the crux of the Me Too conversation, right? Is, is if I've told you that this person has done harm to me, are you willing to listen to me explain what the harm is? That's yes. And I think that's, that's helpful. And then the extension of that is when you have conflicting values in a situation or when you, I hate to say it this way, but when you have priorities in conflict, you know, I think about this is not the Me Too movement, but I think about what happened at Penn State with the terrible abuse of children. And clearly there were people, high levels in the athletic department as well as at the university, that determined that it was more important to win football games and with all the revenue um, and, you know, recruitment that comes with that than to protect, you know, the children or to address the awful behavior. Now, I obviously very strongly disagree with that decision, but like those are the kinds of things I think we need to wrestle with before things happen. And I I would like to see institutions and businesses wrestle with is like, what are the priorities? Like what, you know, what is more important? Obviously, I personally think it was much more important to protect those children. I think it's much more important. You know, we hear about some of the uh, media outlets. It's much more important to have a safe workplace um, than to, you know, keep getting ratings at the expense of staff. I'd like to think that in the long term, it's going to be good for ratings that you have a safe workplace and people who, you know, want to keep coming to work and feel safe. But, you know, it's those, I think, what are the values and then what, what are the priorities? What's a greater priority than something else? And I, 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 again, I'm really disturbed that I don't think we have a shared sense of that across well, our society. Don't you already have access to those, the answers to those questions? I mean, let's talk about the Kavanaugh hearing, okay? Let's, let's talk about the fact that this woman came forward, said this thing happened to her. 
Um, and then lately another woman and then recently a third woman has come forward, right? The fact that the discussion when it was just Dr. Ford, the first woman who came forward that, oh, we should just vote. We should just slam this through. And then doubting her like, oh, maybe she's confused as if people who are sexually assaulted are confused about what happens to them. Just the fact that that's where we go. Just the fact that there are still plenty of people who are like, well, this was a long time ago. What does this have to do with his ability to be a Supreme Court justice? The fact that those questions get answer, that get asked answers your question, doesn't it, Jason, about our well, shared value? And then when it comes to Penn State, um, and I don't want to, because I think children are a little different than like the widespread um, cultural abuse of women, just because that we've codified that as a crime. And we are we're pretty clear about that being a crime, unless it's Catholic, then it's fine. But um, but, but without going too far down that road, like I think the fact that we allow men like Brett Kavanaugh to get away with even having a hearing and not being like chased off the hill answers your question. We don't have shared values. But I think what's more disturbing is that the values that are actually being revealed are really kind of nasty. And I'm, I'm always curious how we got here. How did we arrive here? If you'd asked me 25 years ago if this is where we would be vis-a-vis women, women's visibility and women's rights, I would have not believed you. I wouldn't believe we'd be having these conversations today, honestly. Why? Well, can I, I let me, I just want to push back on that a little bit, okay. um, which is that, I mean, I, I agree with you that, I, I mean, I think even uh, we can talk about the Kavanaugh hearings, which is that we're in that moment. But I think an even greater illustration of the point you're making, Chris, I think, is the fact that there are a lot of people who have very explicitly, I mean, they, you will hear people say it in interviews, you know, they support the president, um, believing that he has done terrible things and disagreeing with some of the nastiness and things that he said, but because it's going to mean a conservative Supreme Court justice, for instance, or he's going to stand up to China. So you're right that that people every day are making those decisions. And, um, and it is clear that we don't have shared values and some people value certain things over others. The thing I would say is that about, you know, the Kavanaugh hearing, and again, I'm not, I, I agree that um, at this point with the number of accusers, uh, I'm very troubled by the number of people who think it is so important that this one person have the ability to get on the Supreme Court. I don't think that's owed to anyone. And I think that at a certain point, uh, we should be able to say, you know, this person, um, all these accusations, there's got to be some substance here. And uh, we, we should find someone who doesn't have this kind of history. But I think the only thing I'm taking issue with is 25 years ago, Chris, I, I think a lot of the behaviors that we're hearing about were much more acceptable. Um, I'm not at all justifying them, but I, I guess I'm just taking issue with, I think there's been some progress in that, you know, some of the, the kind of drunken behavior that we're hearing about, I think a lot of people were complacent with it. Uh, I mean, I think about when I was in high school, you know, groping women, and I'm not saying that's all that's being alleged here, but some of the behavior that's being alleged, I feel like it was understood. I, I'll, I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up because I'm talking too long, but I can actually remember... Um, when I was in high school. Oh, don't confess anything. <laughs> no, I, I was perfect. Okay? okay. I never did anything wrong. But I can remember that like, you know, there were like boys touching girls butts was like common. And it was not something that the school responded to. It just wasn't. I'm not saying, you know, the girls liked it. I'm not saying like it was okay. But 
And then I can remember what my sister is a few years younger than I am. When I was out of high school and she was in high school, I remember hearing that kids got suspended for touching girls' butts. And I was shocked. Well, like this is to my point, which is why I thought that we would be further along now. That's why to me, it feels like a regression. Like I'm not, I'm sorry to cut you off, Jason, but I'm not like to answer Trisha's question earlier when she asked just why, why would I think they'd be further along is because like in the nineties and then at the turn of the century, there were discussions around women, women in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. Not to the degree that we have now, but I feel like those conversations were starting and accelerating, which has moved us to the present moment. I, the, the race to accept these abominable men back into society and give them pats on the back, the race to elect them and to raise them up. I'm just, I, I'm going to be honest. That surprises me. I, I don't think it's that surprising. Do you know why? Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I think it's not surprising is because listen to the defense. I, I genuinely think that a part of man, the definition of manhood is sexual aggression. And so I think that when you have not, listen, we talked about this in a couple, maybe a podcast, a couple in the first season one, when I talked about the men, men needed a men's rights movement, just like the women's movement happened and redefined gender roles and talked about that. I think that men define their masculinity through sexual aggression mm. and power. And so I think that a lot of women have been defending these guys because I think they define masculinity similarly too. Like this is just, bo- that's the full extension of boys being boys. Is that their job as men is to take what they want. And your job as a man is to ascend to the power rung so that you take as much as you want without any repercussions, right? And the reality is, I mean, and, but is that, a, is that different? You're not wrong, it's just gross. But is that different from your assumption, right? And so if that is your definition of masculinity or manhood, how can we even, I hate to say it out loud because that's not what I believe, but how do you even fault men? Because this is what the culture has communicated that manhood is, Mm -hmm. right? And we have, we elected someone with a problematic sexual history. That was not disqualifying to the highest office of the land in many, in, in, in people's mind. That's yeah, the let, highest the, let that let people know that let so, you know right you know away. I mean? That let you know, that lets you know that they, I mean, that, that wasn't a disqualifier. And so if that wasn't a disqualifier, then maybe the reality is that this is truly, we need to be truly having a conversation about what is masculinity and what is manhood and what does it mean to actually be a man in this culture? And if being a man in this culture is the right to grab a woman by the pussy anytime you want, as these boys were demonstrating in high school, because inco- I mean, that's what happens when you're a teen, right? You're inculcated in the cultural practice. Mm-hmm. We don't have rites of passage, passage like you have in traditional cultural spaces, right? In older, maybe more um, closed communities. But in a community such as ours, it seems to me that these men are describing behaviors that were considered rites of passage. And now they're sitting around going, well, this is not disqualifying. This is what it means to be a man. Well, Kavanaugh, in a speech they dug up where he said, like, what happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown Prep. It was something he had done years and years and years ago. I don't remember what the context was. And then he ended up with, and we're all better off for that. And I feel like the joke itself is predicated on this idea 
mm-hmm. that there is bad behavior happening yep. and we're going to leave it past there and it will not impede me at all from moving on with my life, regardless of who might have gotten um, on the, who might be on the receiving end of that. Or at least bad behavior for white men. Yeah. Because let's be uh, honest. Well, please, let's be honest. Like no one said that Emmett Till was just a boy, but <laughs> no somehow, Kavan- <laughs> somehow Kavanaugh was young and we should let this go. <laughs> Or all the very, all the, all the many victims, you know, I mean, and so it's just, I, and so for me, that's what's so interesting and useful, I think, about something like Me Too, is that Me Too is an unmasking. If you're paying attention to Me Too, then Me Too is letting you know that this is the reality of women's existence. I was actually, I confessed to my sister today, I said, you know, I don't have as many stories of victimization or sexual assault as some of my girlfriends because I don't date that much. And that's the only reason why. (laughs) That's really it. It's the price you pay for interacting with men within a sexual environment. And sometimes not even, because you could just be at work doing your job and someone decides, right? Um, But I've also chosen work environments that were overwhelmingly female, so that also helps me too. But I mean, that tells me that this is a cultural practice, similar to the question of the Catholic church which I have to say, you know, um, we're clear about it being a crime, but not so clear because no one's paid any consequences. Well, I mean, that's a whole nother topic because the church is subject to, I mean, it's subject, I mean, yes, men are at the top of it, but also the religiosity of it is feeds into this bizarre brainwashing where people are lining up to bring their children to be molested. um, All evidence. But it's a little bit related, right? Because what you're seeing is a microcosm of a larger culture, right? And so mm-hmm. if you ask yourself the question, is, the, is everything that happens with the Catholic Church a part of Me Too? And if it is, can we sort of unpack what's happening in that organization and admit the truth of what's going on there? Well, one day, right? one day, I think, I think where, it, where it links up with our conversation today is just the fact, again, it's men behaving badly, men protecting men and creating spaces where they can continue to behave badly. Um, Although, can I say there's an interesting badly? Are they behaving badly, or are they just behaving as they should? Well, Well, Jason, you have the last word on this. Well, I just want to say I think it's interesting the turn that the conversation's taken. I think there is no debate right now about how horrible and unacceptable what's going on in the Catholic Church is, and what's interesting about that is that one, I think. It's happening to children. At least that's what the focus is on right now. And it's always been the case, I think, that we maybe are not as sensitive as we should be, but we are more sensitive to children being harmed than adult women. And I also think, for, especially for people who are not Catholic, um, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier, it's much less painful, it causes less self-conflict to point at the Catholic Church as an institution. And don't get me wrong, it is culpable. There are enormous problems. But it's easier to, to point a finger at that than to point a finger at the everyday workplace in our society. Because, again, the Catholic Church, we can all point to and say, that's that thing over there, and it's awful, and we've got to fix it and change it. But pointing to workplaces, diverse, different places, we, you know, most of us go to work every day, that's a lot harder because then you're, you're kind of implicating yourself as being complacent with, you know, kind of our, our overall economy. But are we also complacent? Listen, the Catholic Church is still a viable institution. It has not failed. 
like with all of with the latest report from Philadelphia and and early Boston and da, 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 and they're going to go all now apparently they're going to go investigate um Maryland so you know what's coming i mean if the, if if we have failed to punish that church doesn't that by extension tell us that it is okay well but the difference is that again like these are orders of magnitude the difference is that there is right now, there are prosecutors going after the church. I mean, you're right. The institution's not going to fall, and maybe that's a problem. But there are prosecutors going after that. There are a lot of un- other institutions in our society where this kind of behavior is happening, and you don't have this concerted effort of prosecutors going after it. Okay. Uh, let's. I think we shifted away from what we are talking about. So just to wrap up the um, Kavanaugh thing, uh, you think he'll be in the Supreme Court justice by the time we all hear this? I mean, I think I think we might we might enter a place where people will decide not that he's not that he's wrong or right or shouldn't, but that they might actually hold to a process, mm-hmm. an investigation. That's really the question on the table, right? This person has done something that suggests that there needs to be an external investigation, which is entirely appropriate. The president can request it. And it can happen. The FBI is prepared to do it. So they could just follow protocol, give lip service even to it if they want to. Like, let's go through an investigation. I mean, we held a we held a Supreme Court seat empty for an entire year. This investigation supposedly can take, what, 10 to 12 days. So, I mean, maybe that will be the compromise point. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't claim to know. But I would have to think at this point, I think we're up to four accusers at this moment. Oh, it's five. And, you know, there could be more. I'd have to think that if I'm, you know, Mitch McConnell or a leader in the Republican Party, I feel like their best option right now, all things considered, is for him to bow out. Like, they're not going to want to rescind the nomination because then they're going to look defeated there. But I also think uh, every day I think they're losing more and more potential women support and hopefully others. Um, I have to think at this point what they'd hope is that they can get him to say, this is too much for my family, I'm going to bow out, and then they do a lot more research on someone else and, and pick that person. Again, I don't, I don't know if that's what would happen, but I would think in their political interest, that's probably the best thing. Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to cut you off because it would have already have happened by the time this airs. So, uh, listener, you, you, you knew. Let's see, was Jason Wright listener? I don't know. We'll find out. Before you go, though, I really want to make a connection. I know it seemed like we went off topic, but I really don't think we did. Okay. I, I think the Catholic Church and what we allow to happen there is symptomatic of the larger culture. And if we don't figure out a way to actually hold those people accountable, no one served jail time. None. Money. No one ever will. But this is why this is a different topic. That's really different. We, can hold, we can hold Kavanaugh. We can hold Kavanaugh and all these other men responsible in a particular way because there's a process. There's zero process for outing or dismantling a thousand-year organization. That's why it's really different. It's not, though. Even if if those men are caught raping children on film, they will not go to jail. And that is not about our culture. That is about the religiosity of the people involved in it. That's why I see that as a different conversation. Not at all. It is culture. It is religiosity is culture. And so the, if, this if, is why- if there is a tape with Kavanaugh assaulting 
uh, that woman at a party. Over for him. But we're not dealing with Kavanaugh specifically. The initial conversation is, can these men come back, right? In terms of the Me Too space. Kavanaugh is really concrete. And so if there's a tape, he's part of a process and that will stop it, right? That could theoretically stop it. But with Me Too, that's why I think there's real synergy between Me Too and the church. Because the reality is... how do those priests come back? They have been allowed to be back, right? No. They've been allowed to be in those spaces. I think you're misreading that because the, the idea of coming back, like when we talk about Weinstein and Matt Lauer and the rest of them, is that there was some sort of mea culpa. There was some sort of like social like indictment upon which you disappeared and then you come back. That's not happening with priests. The priests molest the children. Their bosses move them and shuffle them and hide them. Just And they, they don't come back. They never go away. That's, that's true. That's the difference. That's true. So, I mean, that's why I understand what you're saying, Trisha, is that the connection is it's powerful men in power doing terrible things. But when you talk about the Catholic Church, like the rules are so different. It's so different. I mean, if you see the movie Spotlight, you just get to see that. There is no way that senators could have like a ring where they are abusing women and like they keep records and they give them gifts so that other abusers would know that they can be targeted. There is zero way that those people would have that and not end up in the deepest, darkest jail because there is a limit to what we will allow in our culture. Now, the Catholic Church has been doing this for hundreds of years and me too, me too will die before the Catholic Church does. That's my point. Like there is a connection, but I don't think it's a direct a connection as you're trying to draw. I do. I think it is. And I think because and I, I because the, your assumption that people have been punished for doing egregious things and we let that happen. And that's obviously not the case because that's what Me Too tells us. Mita tells us that men have been secretly doing these things and have been getting away with it and is climbing at the very top of the power, the power mm-hmm. structure. And you know what I mean? And so I think it's more concretely obvious in the Catholic example and because they're children. But what I'm trying to say is that if we think doing these things to children are, are horrendous and horrible and we have not figured out a way to punish them, then I don't understand how we're going to make that, that leap for women who... Um, who also reveal that they've been victimized by very powerful men. Do you see what I mean? That's 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 the question I'm asking, you know? Well, and I would I just point out... To, I continue to say apples and oranges. Uh, I would just point out, I think... I do think all this comes back to values and priorities. Yep. There, there are a lot of people and well-moneyed institutions, well-moneyed institutions, that put the priority of the perpetuation of the church above all else. Yeah. And... That is ultimately why I think I'm just reflecting on the question you asked, Chris, which is like, why would an institution that's this, you know, has done this much harm or has allowed this much harm to occur within it, you know, why can't it be brought down? To some people, it is the highest value and a lot of people and again, some very moneyed uh, institutions. Well, I mean, I, I can't draw this distinction enough, but the church has a head of state in a foreign country, you know, like the, the rules are really different than Harvey Weinstein, like forcing women to have sex with him by the dozens. It's it really bad. different what we can do to him. It's very different how we react to him than priests who have literally molested dozens of children and don't miss a day on the job. Well, yeah, because there are hundreds of millions of people that subscribe mm-hmm. to the concept of papal infallibility. And you're right. I don't think there's 
there there are very few people like even even in our country even with all the problems there's no one in our structure that you know has the solemn divine uh, attribute of being infallible in but that is something that the pope defense, has in defense of the charges that came out i saw a priest uh it might it wasn't a priest it was one of the higher ups say it like intimate that he didn't even know if sex with children was a crime that's that's where that organization is. They can say things like that are. and get away with it. And this is where we are because men don't assume that what they do to women is also a crime. Well, if that was true, if that was true, then like the Kavanaugh hearings would look really different. Instead of saying, I deny it, this happened. I wasn't there. Here's my calendar. Then the defense would be the Catholic defense, which is like, what's the big deal? I it's did do it. Defense. What is the big it's deal? Defense. That's really different. It is the defense that's being used, though. This is what I don't understand. That's the defense that's being used. No, I disagree, Trisha. I'm with Chris on this because... I think it's interesting that you two dudes don't understand that I'm telling you that the same assumptions, implicit assumptions, are playing out. They're about power, and they're about powerful men who get to decide what is actually... I agree. Implicit. Implicit, explicitly, it plays out differently. I'm with you. Implicitly, it's the same thing underneath, but, but it plays out saying. differently. Like government and elected officials is really different than agents of an infallible other god in another dimension. It's really different. <laughs> that's my point. But that's my whole point. Like I don't I think either it. of us are disagreeing with you that this is about men in power abusing that power and then like extending their tendrils to the society to support them. So the tendrils for the Catholic Church go way deeper and way farther than like Kavanaugh, Weinstein, Woody Allen, any of them could even hope or dream. But I'm, but I'm not talking about that. Okay. We're, we're talking about cultural practice. Yes. All, all I'm saying is use the Catholic Church as a model and a microcosm of a culture. It, it, it's in a discreet way, but you can see it largely play out in the culture. You know, these men also have not been punished. And the question of whether they should even be punished has been raised because what their behavior, their behavior has been ballied about as what their right to do it. Do you know what I mean? And so that's, that's the, I'm just talking about sort of the cultural milieu for both, right? Whether the rules are very yeah, I, I yeah. see that. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm with you there. Yeah. It's, just this, it's the specifics and the, the explicit, the explicit way we deal with those two things. That's where I disagree with you. But yeah, I agree with you from the beginning, Trisha, that this is about men. Like to talk about men in power, that's what the church is. I just think once you start laying the specifics on the table, it gets really different because we allow different things for, sorry, we allow different things from them for different reasons. That's, but that's mine. We've already gone on too long <laughs> about this. We have. That's a, that's, now that's the third topic. Okay. So leaving that aside, let us go to the movies. So Crazy Rich Asians took a ton of money this summer. And then Searching, starring John Cho, which if you haven't seen it, see it. That is my low-key media recommendation. Such a great movie. There is a Netflix show that just started called Kim's Convenience about an Asian-American family. Cultural hijinks ensue. And then, as we all know, Fresh Off the Boat has been it's entering its fourth or fifth season. Hollywood has finally discovered that Asians exist and that they will spend coin to go to the theater. I guess my question was, is this a moment for people of color or is this just another fetishy flash in the pan? Uh, Black Panther came out uh, earlier this year and Girls Trip came out last year. But I mean, even those, I wouldn't say for black movies, that was like 
that was like new, like black movies have been really successful. I think the difference being black Panther was such a, a, such a mainstream movie and couldn't be slotted off as a black movie. My point being is that like, do you think Hollywood is learning anything or, or is this going to just be more fetishy sort of stuff coming out? Trish. I think they've learned that Henry Golding could be attractive. Oh, Henry Golding. He's so hot. <laughs> you know, I posed the question on my, on my Facebook feed. If, um, will, Henry Golding ever appear across from an Asian woman as a love interest again? Well, this and, is part of my question, right? I mean, what what does mainstreaming mean here in this context? And how, I mean, is this a moment for people of color where Hollywood will finally be like, oh, we can have them in movies? Or is it just going to be like, sort of like, oh, there's going to be a hot Asian lead and he's going to fall for Emma Stone? Like, yeah. that's, that's my question. That's what I think is going to happen. That's what I meant when I asked. Is that going to, because I think the reality is if you're putting Henry Golding in a movie with another Asian lead, then you actually really believe that it's possible to find those two people intriguing on screen. But really what's going to happen, I think, is that you're going to pull and pop a couple individuals, a couple people. And I think they've decided that Henry Golding is going to be that one. And then you're going to plop him in movies across from white women. So you, you don't have much that. faith that this is a moment in time. No, I really don't. And I actually, I think it's, I think, I think for Hollywood, it's just like, whoa, what a happy accident. And I think that's it. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> because actually, you know what? I think the question is, is that really the purpose of Hollywood as an industry? Right? I think Hollywood as an industry is, it's there for, I think it's there for white actors and white performers. And so when you might have like a surprise hit here or there with like a, uh, particularly like an Asian cast or a black class or whatever. It's a happy accident and that's really cool. And if we can maybe make some money off of it, great. But I don't think that's the mission statement of Hollywood. But I when mean, that happy accident happens year after year, project after project, doesn't that mean something, Jason? I think the answer to your question, again, I don't know what will happen. I think that in order to make it the norm that people of color are appearing in mainstream films, both films where the majority of the cast is minority and films where uh, the majority might be, you know, white, white actors, but uh, with some minority actors, I think for that to become the norm and to be perpetuated, it will take some deliberate action on the part of some people in Hollywood. I think if Hollywood's completely left to just play out and evolve as it always has, then I don't, I'm not terribly optimistic that, that it will continue. I think we, we, I mean, you can go back a long way and see movies with people of color that made a lot of money. We could sit here and name individual, you know, exceptions, people of color who've been in a lot of mainstream movies and draw at the box office. And yet we continue to see that the norm would be that those folks are not getting as many roles that, you know, white, uh, mainstream actors are being cast into roles that could easily be people of color or even the characters are people of color. We've talked about that on this podcast. So I think it will have to be very deliberate. Uh, you know, I do think if you look right now, I mean, there are some African-American, you know, producers, directors in Hollywood that I think are, I don't know if being strategic is the right word, but are certainly um, making like a really large mark. I mean, I think about like Ryan Coogler, right? What what I, he, has he had a project since Black Panther? Has he did he do anything else this year or is that it? 
I think he's um, working on something, right? Yeah, I don't I, think he's, he he's, he's, he's working a lot. <laughs> but what's, what I find interesting, I mean, I find him so fascinating. You know, he's made three big movies, right? And they're all very different. They're different genres. Uh, I mean, totally different. They're all pretty successful, each one more successful than the previous, I think. You know, there's going to be a sequel to Creed, and he did not direct it. I think he has, like, an executive producer role or something. But he is, like, planting seeds in really fascinating places. So, you know, you look at what Creed is. Creed is, you know, an extenuation of Rocky, but it is, you know, the main character is black. The main characters are primarily black other than Sylvester Stallone's character. And, you know, now you've got other people making that movie. I mean, I again, I don't know if he's being strategic or he's just so brilliant that he's making waves. He clearly is brilliant. But I do think it's going to be that kind of activity. Like, people need to be very strategic about making movies in genres, casting, you know, uh, diverse casts, and uh, being successful at it and continuing to build on that. Well, you know, good news for you, Jason. This will be interesting. His next movie is called Wrong Answer. And it's all about that scandal in Atlanta when um, the school um, oh, wow. were blamed for um, altering test scores for their students in, you know, because they were in danger of losing funding. So I think that's based on a true story. So let's see him tackle that. But I, I mean, wow, I think- that's fascinating. I didn't know that. I mean, what's your sense of it, Chris? I mean, do you do you feel a shift? I don't. I don't either. You know, it, it's just, I was listening to Jason talk right now, just like, oh, this is what people would need to do given this information. And mm-hmm. while you were talking, Jason, I was like, you know, they've had this information. Always. It's like when, when The Best Man came out, then yep. like The Best Man Christmas came out, and they were falling all over each other to understand how this money was, movie was making so much money because there were so many black people in it. And they were like, <laughs> oh, I just can't figure out why this movie is so popular. And the answer is staring them in the face that this is what people want to see. So I, I feel like right now, they're like Asians. They're new and they exist and, you know, they'll run out and they'll make Asian movies and we'll all go see them because like, you know, we're starved to see other people on screen. Um, and then they'll go back, you know, then it will be La La Land 2. Yep. And no, but I, I think, I think, uh, let me be a little clearer. I think the key is in your use of the word they. Mm-hmm. The they needs to be infiltrated. And I think there are people infiltrating right now. Not enough, but I think if the they is strategically infiltrated in such a way that that it just becomes more and more normal uh, for there to be, you know, minority cast members uh, in all different films and all different genres, then I think this could become the way things go. But it's going to take some really, unfortunately, it's going to take some very strategic, dedicated persistence. Well, you know, the other thing is there is a structure, there's a strategy that people have been have been offering up on the table, which I think a couple people have used. Michael B. Jordan, I think Francis McDormand mentioned it at the Hollywood. Yeah. It's the inclusion writer, which is you, right. you know, you as an actor have the power if you are a particular type of actor that people want to work with or, you know, you have enough cachet, you can make demands of a studio about, you know, what an actor, what another actor might be able to be compensated or whether, you know, the, the show is going to have, um, you know, uh, a women lead or something like that. Because actually that's, I, I've seen that in other environments too. I've noted, I've talked to a couple of like directors of um, organizations that say that they're not going to appear on any panels unless a woman's on the panel too. Nice. Or they're not gonna, you know what I mean? Those kinds of things where essentially the work has to be done by your allies. 
right? <laughs> <Because> I mean, <laughs> you know, I know, right? It's, it's, it's what am I going to say? What am I going to say, Trisha? You know what I'm going to say about that. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I mean, it is. But you know what's interesting about it, though? The the Because think about this. The last time there was a movie like um, Crazy Rich Asian was the Joy Luck Club. And Holy who shit. Who wouldn't think that was going to change? And it didn't happen. And I remember when The Bodyguard came out, and people were like, oh my God, black, black women loved romances or with any, or waiting to exhale or any of those kinds of things. It's like, there are always these signature movies that are supposed to signal to Hollywood, take my money. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's really sort of interesting that Hollywood basically says, I don't want your money. Like they know that there's money to be made and they actively say, do not give me your money. That's like, you know. <laughs> Think about that. You know what I, I have to say? Like something that I've learned over the past two years of this horrific administration and just like for a very long time, like for most of my life, I just assumed that America was greedy yep. and was about money and they would do anything to make money, you know, and like they'll, they'll, they'll allow anything as long as they're making money. Like Jason, you brought up early about like UPenn. Like they knew kids were being touched and Penn State. Penn, Penn State. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 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 Jason went to Woo. UPenn. Woo. And that school's great. Oh. Uh, I meant Penn State, but like everything was going to Penn State. They were like, "Well, we're making cash." And for a long time, I just thought that America was really interested in that, only that, and nothing else. But what I've learned in the past couple of years is that while I've always known that the nation is white supremacist, I didn't realize the value that that was placed on the culture. Whereas even though Hollywood and the people, the powers that be see how much money diversity will make um, for them and line their pockets, they will still resist doing the films for some other reason. And I'm embarrassed to say that that surprised me. Like a lot of the choices that I've seen people make in this year, not just in the movie industry, but across other industries, I've just been really surprised and I've, I've been embarrassed that I'm surprised because I think I should just know that. Um, well, you know, I think in a certain way, assuming that money was the root of it all was sort of safe, wasn't it? Because you could say, well, listen, if I show that there's, um, if I show that you can make money off of this and you will, you will necessarily move down that road, right? Yeah. But this it feels is- like there's a process for it. But when yeah. they just close the door, then you're just like, oh then my God. Have, then you have to really internally ask yourself and it comes back to Jason's question. What are our values? Yeah. And so even the even connecting it back to our first topic of conversation, you know, Jason's assumption was that we would, you know, the Republican Party is afraid of losing women, but I don't even know if that's really the case because no, that's I don't think so. That's something that people have been saying out loud, and I was like, I don't know. I think they don't mind losing the women that they're losing because I think they believe that they're sacrificing um, for a greater good, mm-hmm. and so I and so I think the same thing is happening with this conversation around diversity in Hollywood. I think that the assumption that we're making is that diversity is inherently valuable, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. And I think people in very powerful positions are letting you know that we will sacrifice diversity for another kind of value. And so I think we begin to say to ourselves, okay, this is not just simply about the biggest box office wins. No, it's it's not. It really isn't. I think that is, it, it's a little depressing. But, but I think that's why. <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. That's why I think for those who do 
value diversity or for those who even value, you know, the box office income over race nepotism um, and our consciousness are conscious enough to do that. Um, it's going to take those people being very deliberate. I mean, I like the example you brought up. I think you brought it up, Tricia, about the, the writers. Mm-hmm. Um, like that is, a, that is an example of someone who has some power in Hollywood choosing to leverage it. And it's going to take more people doing that. Like, that's why I, I don't think it's just a matter of, oh, you know, we have more diverse movies now and it's going to stay that way. It will take deliberate action on the part of people who have some power leveraging that power to ensure that there is more diversity, more equity. Oh, God. I, I mean, but you know what? You know what? I have a problem guys, with that. Did you guys realize where we land, though? We basically landed on a, a question that you, I think, were asking, Chris, which is cultural change. Mm-hmm. If you don't have um, money as the thing to fall back on, right, then you actually basically have to say, what are your cultural values and how do you move certain values forward? How, you, how do you propel things forward in a way that says we support these four or five values over some others? And how do you make that change? Because if it's not just about money, it, it has to be behavior, I guess. It has to be. I mean, it's like you have to do a, whole, a full shift. Mm-hmm. Punish I have it? to say, I, I have to punish- say, <laughs> I, <laughs> I pose this question, but mm-hmm. have we talked about it? I'm more depressed than ever. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like I'm listening to what you're saying, Jason. It's like both of you are saying like, oh, you know, allies can get up there and, and do whatever and yeah, that is absolutely true. And I get it. I want you to go out there and do that. And, you know, wear a fucking safety pin on your bag. Or, you know, it just, those things just feel really weak and they feel very, I don't know. I don't know. Patricia, you and I had a conversation this morning. You, yeah, you and I had a conversation this morning about just like systems and processes and how people of color usually create their own systems only because like, you know, the culture at large doesn't understand, doesn't want to understand, or as ideas baked about people of color or like so far baked into them that they can't actually produce something that's very helpful. And the example that I used in our earlier conversation was the, the show Insecure, where the main character works, We Got Y'all, which is supposed to be like this literacy group for um, disadvantaged black and Latino kids run by a white woman who refuses, who has an all white staff and refuses to listen to the main character's ideas. Like, hey, she has a black staff member. Come on. <laughs> oh yeah. They just hired a new <laughs> one. Uh, but my, my point being is that like to hear that, Oh, we, we you, you need Francis McDormand and the rest of them to sort of like, Hey, Hey, hire more black people. It just, but, but wait, I didn't say anything about allies. I mentioned Ryan Coogler as the example. Like, well, Ryan Coogler, you mentioned him and Michael P. Jordan. And I think that, that yeah, I totally get that. But like we. But you do need the others. You like, would, yeah, you would need, you would need like the Nicole Kidmans and the A-list yeah, white you need, stars you need a to do movement. this. You need a movement. And I just, at the end of the day, like, it, I'm just going to say this, but if you have to rely on white people to lift up people of color, it's just. I mean, when has that ever happened? I mean, so, if- so therefore, I'm more depressed about the end of this conversation. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think you have. I mean, I, I mean look, it's easy for me to say success. Maybe your barometers of success are off, right? 
Maybe okay. the question is not about having mainstream movies. Maybe it's just about having access to opportunities to make movies, period. You know, that's really that. Yeah, we me, talked about that before. Yeah. yeah, that's really what it comes down to is like, I don't need another crazy rich Asian hit. I just need like four or five Asian movies um, mm. out. You know what I mean? And I don't need them to be integrated in with a white cast in order for that to work. Because again, that means less work actually for Asians because it's like one or two in the movie. I'd mm. rather yeah. have, you know, and so I think that's where I think um, we might have to shift our expectation around sort of mainstream success and basically say, I want to be able to see more of you, you know, and however we allow those kinds. I mean, and maybe that, maybe the technological um, aspects are there. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I have to think about that a little bit. Like, you know, movies come to Netflix. Lots of things come to Netflix. I think there's like a whole romance genre that's like popping up on Netflix and it's got a lot more diversity in it. Do you know what I mean? So maybe as things get cheaper, the means of production and distribution get cheaper, you, um, you'll you see more people have the capacity to make more movies. Um, and actually big, big box office movies are actually quite rare, to be honest, nowadays. Nowadays. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> it's hard to make 20 million out here. Really, these it poor, is. These poor studio execs. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's a comic movie. You, you have to use a comic movie to make that happen, right? Yeah. So, In closing, I just want yeah. to uh, highlight the fact that when Crazy Rich Asians were being floated, they were like, well, what if we change the main character to a white woman? That's so weird. <laughs> it wasn't, though? Um, <laughs> was it? I'm surprised That's you. very typical. That very kind dumb. of thinking is very typical. You know, it's going to be – get ready, America. You're going to see how many half-Asian actresses are going to be propelled to the forefront. Just like just like when black they wanted to put black people in films, they uh, in earlier films, they found the most manila envelope-colored <laughs> women to, to, put, to put opposite white men for romantic interest. It's like paging Zoe Saldana, paging Stop Halle Berry. <laughs> am I right or am I right? Oh my gosh, you're brutal. But now they're paging Henry Golden. And while I love him and I think he should have tremendous success, I do understand why he's going to emerge out of that movie as the star that he is and um, integrated into mainstream movies. But um, nonetheless, I'd like to see all the other guys too. <laughs> yeah, go see Crazy Rich Asians if you haven't. It's, um, it, the, it's, perfectly, it's a perfectly acceptable movie. That's my review. It's perfect. That's fine. And that's all it has to be. Yeah, it didn't have to. It it's didn't have to hit the park. Right? You it get one, and then here. it has to do everything, right? It's okay if you have five. You have yeah, the pressure's five. off if you've got five. <laughs> the problem is you don't have five. You get you get one every twenty years. You uh, know they'll do Joy Luck Club Part Two in in twenty forty eight, and then that would be the next one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I have to say also though is Michelle Yeoh is lovely. And that's and you know what? That's really the sadness of it is that you know Michelle Yeoh is so talented and she deserved to be in so many more movies. Don't sleep on Michelle Yeoh. She has an entire career in China. I that, know, that but bitch, that bitch is making fourteen movies a I year. I know, but she was supposed to be a crossover star, but there was yeah. actually not enough movies that they put her in. Yeah, for that to happen, she's incredible. She's great. She's great. All right, moving on. It is time for recommendations. Something that you've seen, heard, read experience you think other people should see see here read or experience um jason i'm very excited to hear yours when you were on here in season one you recommended uh i think a dentist 
barbershop. Uh, a barbershop. Yeah. Um, so you should know in season two, we expressly forbid that kind of fuckery. So um, I hope you have, um, I hope, well, yes, yes. Um, so I hope you have a media recommendation for us and you can go first. I'm going to very quickly name three books. So, you know, oh my God. Okay. So Jason, so there are rules to the recommendation part of the show and your, your first day back, you're already violating. You get one. Okay. All right. I'll do one. I think I've said before on the podcast, I'm a huge fan of uh, Walter Mosley and mm. there is a new installment of the easy Rollins um, series mm. and charcoal Joe is the most recent one. I read it and as good as all the others, it was fantastic. This is like that airport lit that you like, yes? Yes. No, although, no, Mosley is deeper than airport lit. I, uh, I know the name, but I can't quite picture why. Why would I know that name? Well, what is his he first doing? Easy Rollins book is Devil in a Blue Dress, which was made into a movie with ah, Denzel Washington. Maybe that's why. Okay. I also think Bill Clinton has said publicly that he's his favorite author. I think that's true. Oof, that's tough for this guy. <laughs> I don't know where we are on Bill Clinton. I feel, well, like, I feel like that should be uh, like maybe. when they announce the weather for the day and the temperature, they should let you know like how we should feel about Bill Clinton on any given day. I don't know. I've lost well, track. And he recently co-wrote his own airport lit, which apparently oh, didn't oh. sell anything because everyone just wanted to hear his feelings about the Me Too movement. <laughs> <laughs> Time's up. Ah! <laughs> so what was the name of the book again, Jason? Charcoal Joe. Charcoal Joe. Okay, cool. Cool. Trisha? Okay, I'm trying to be good and actually um, enjoy media experiences again. <laughs> so sad. But um, a couple days ago, my sister and I watched um, Basquiat uh, Rage to Riches, um, a documentary on um, Jean-Paul Basquiat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually really, really enjoyable. I don't, Jean Michael, I think it is. I want to call him Jean Paul, but it's Jean Michael. Yeah, I, was, I thought um, so. Yeah. I know. I was like, why do I want to call him Jean Paul? Yeah, I didn't call right. So, um, you know, apparently one of the most influential American artists of the 20th century died extremely young. Um, but it was a really enjoyable documentary. Um, it's on PBS, and I think you can also still continue to see it on PBS um, streaming. Um, I didn't know much about him. I've seen his work, obviously, and um, it was fascinating to learn about his life through his siblings. Um, mm-hmm. They interviewed his two sisters who've never really spoken about him publicly. And to sort of hear about the art world in like the early 80s, my God. What I loved is at some point in time, he would just get like chunks of cash for his paintings and he would just put it in his room because he didn't have a bank account. <laughs> just like bank robber style, just like wrapped up cash. Like just cash, chunks of cash. You know? <laughs> but I did say I, I I did think it was really interesting too. He's really fascinating because you know he really had this. Um, he was sort of like lo- beloved by a lot of white artists, right, and a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. But then there was always this point. I think there's this real struggle with him as an artist about really feeling as if he belonged in that space, um, and having like a real antagonism with that space. But then at the same time, his artwork was extremely black and really like really spoke to the Black American experience. So it's a really, really kind of really fascinating documentary. It just made me kind of want, want to know more about him and also be sad that he, I mean, he, he always knew he was going to be famous too. That was his, that was his plan for himself. You know, he would say, <laughs> he, he would say to uh, like an art gallery owner, oh no, no, you want my work. 
I love it. You know what? I love I when love people that have that energy. Like and, and for everyone who ascends, there's like easily like a hundred thousand people who did it. Who I was listening to right? I was listening to RuPaul talk this morning um on, on his podcast about how like he just knew he was gonna be famous and yeah. now he's RuPaul. And I was like, Yeah, that's great. Unless you weren't famous, then you'd just be like some deluded kid in a drama I class. <laughs> but you know, sadly he died of an overdose at twenty seven. Oh wow, that's 27. the age. That is isn't the it, age. Isn't that the age? Jim Morrison, Jimmy is Hendrix, I think. Well, 27. That's such a that's nothing, right? That's, that's a blip. You're a baby. A baby. You didn't Barely know. you've been that's an adult for just not even no, 10 years. I gotta tell you, I was scared to death because of all that that I would die at 27. And then when I made it to 28, I realized I'm not all that relevant to the culture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what you when you get to the other side. You're like, I needed to go out in a blaze of glory because now no one gives a shit about my opinions. <laughs> Honestly, one of the things to note about him is that one of his paintings, his I mean his paintings sell for a lot of money. Yes. But I think so I think he has a painting called Untitled that sold for a hundred and ten million dollars in 2007 i don't know what that means that's too much money it's ridiculous right <laughs> but i mean but to be honest he was only famous for 10 years i mean th- compared to my zero so that sounds pretty great to me oh, only 10 oh. years is that what we just said from 17 to 27 is that what we're talking about like, that's, that's the rise like he you know he left his family's home at 13 and went into the streets of new york and was just living but it's just i don't know i mean like these artists that die so young, it's like they don't so, get to experience the whole peak. Tell us again about what this this work was. You said it was an, on Netflix? No, no. It was actually on PBS. PBS. It was PBS. So you can actually, and I went on, I, I just Googled and it said that it, it's also still streaming on PBS.org. Okay, cool. So Everyone... definitely, re- definitely recommend. It's um, great, great. Check it out. My media recommendation is a New York Times piece written by Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. Uh, It's titled, We Are Not the Resistance. And I love this article so much. I was cheering when I read it. And what she says in it is that she sort of critically looks at the hashtag resist movement and the quote unquote resistance. And she sort of calls it out um, in her way. She calls it out for being sort of empty um, and just a tad immature and an underscoring the fact that Trump is at Trump Trumpism in this current moment is actually a resistance to what America is struggling to become, which yeah. I thought was a much more hopeful framing and much more useful. I mean, for the past 50 years, America has been pushing and has been trying so hard to carry the ball into the end zone sports <laughs> reference. If you enjoy sportsing, that's for you. Um, carry the ball into the end zone um, in the game of like human dignity and freedom. And systems have been slamming that back so hard over the past 50 years. Um, and they hired, they hired, they elected a black president, then immediately have this other movement. Nazis are back. Women are just <laughs> being grabbed and tossed around. And like, I, I, I enjoyed the framing. I thought as always that her writing was really compelling and accessible and everyone should check it out we are not the resistance new york times michelle alexander who is lovely and who i was uh i was just networking today and apparently they're like oh well, i'll introduce you to michelle alexander i was like i would love to be introduced to michelle alexander no so, way yeah, so um she's here in new york so um we know we have colleagues in um in common i recently began working at a university i have access to all these things now it's really fantastic 
So check that out. You're going to have her guest, guest star on the podcast? I thought about it. Let me talk to her first. Oh I'd my be like, God, hey. I'm going to have to do so much research. Just I was like, would you, I'll, I'll be like, would you want to be a guest to my Penny Auntie podcast? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I wonder if she'd be Team Chris. Oh, no. Probably not, man. <laughs> Oh, speaking of which, I, I, Team Jason fans, he's back. So I'm back. You can come back and listen again. Oh well, my, God. My, sister, my sister will be very excited because you know she was always Team Jason. Yeah, I know. A, a lot of my friends are, um, hurtfully, Team Jason. So, yeah. <laughs> so Please I'm tell sure. all my fans that I love them dearly. Okay. I'm excited to be back. I'll let you know, Chris, that I'm going to reveal that I'm totally Team Chris. You are? You're the only one. <laughs> Rarefied air. Rarefied air. Oh, my God. You're the only one at the Team Chris meetings. <laughs> yes, it really is difficult to move that children like Ah, rude. Oh, my gosh. All right, you two. This has been fun. I can't wait to do this all season with you. Sounds good. Sounds good. Great. All right, everyone. Have a good night. Good night. Bye.